1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman. In the contemporary philosophical landscape, a variety of materialist ontologies have appeared, all wrestling with various political and philosophical questions in light of a post-God ontology. Entering into this discussion is my guest today, Adrian Johnston, to discuss the first volume of his three-volume Prolegomena to Any Future Materialism, an attempt to develop a systematic and thoroughly atheistic material ontology of the subject. The first volume, subtitled The Outcome of Contemporary French Philosophy, published in 2013, looks at three recent French theorists, Jacques Lacan, Alain Bedou, and Quentin Meillassoux arguing that all three ultimately fail to maintain a consistent atheism, regularly relying on various supramaterial elements to hold their systems together. In doing so, the book attempts to clear the ground for a consistently materialist ontology to be pursued in the latter two volumes. Adrian Johnston is chair and distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of New Mexico and a faculty member at the Emory Psychoanalytic Institute. He is the author of close to a dozen books, including, among others, Time-Driven, Metapsychology and the Splitting of the Drive, and Adventures in Transcendental Materialism, Dialogues with Contemporary Thinkers. He is also a co-editor of Northwestern University Press's book series, Diuresis, of which this trilogy is a contribution. So, Adrian Johnston, welcome back to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you, and I'm delighted to be back. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you again, Stephen.
1: All right. So as always, we like to always introduce our guests or have them introduce themselves. So could you maybe tell us a bit about what your main research interests are and how this fits into that?
0: Um, I can begin by saying that uh, I take my philosophical inspiration from three orientations German idealism Marxism and psychoanalysis uh, and that using the resources from these particular intellectual traditions uh, I attempt to intervene in a number of areas of both perennial and contemporary concern uh, you know issues in ontology and metaphysics philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of religion uh, and of course contemporary socio political and cultural matters. Uh, so this is you know the the sort of basic uh, you know framework that uh, that governs you know, what I do in terms of ongoing research and that you know I anticipate in the foreseeable future continuing to guide uh, my my thinking and writing.
1: Wonderful, so to kind of start things off, I'd like to quote you from this book at length a bit. You write, quote, Lacan predicts that religion will triumph not in spite of the thrusts and encroachments of modernizing science and technology, but precisely because of this relentless collective march forward. To be more exact, the Lacanian prophecy apropos this issue is that the more techno scientific development intensifies and expands the meaninglessness of desacralization and disenchantment, all the more to a parallel proportional degree. Will people turn to authorities appearing to guarantee the meaningfulness of life and the universe? The growing desert of the real is a harsh terrain within which subjects are prone to lapse into religious deliriums and hallucinations. Today's societies are living out the disastrous consequences of this toxic, potent inmixing of religion and science, stuck between capitalist techno-manipulation and its irrationalist discontents. Seesawing between the twin big others of the nature of scientism and the god of superstition within the constraining global space of neoliberal economy, humanity is stranded in the waking nightmare of a disgustingly reactionary and horrifically hopeless period of history. So you have said a lot in this passage, but I think it gives a really valuable cultural background to your work or political background. So can you unpack your understanding of our current political and economic moment, and how this series is intended not just as a set of theoretical developments, but as an intervention in a larger set of issues we're facing.
0: Yes. And what I want to do is to uh, uh, unpack this quotation in relation to a project I am currently in the process of finishing. So uh, assuming that the uh, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic does not uh, cancel my kids' summer camps, uh, by the end of this summer, I should have finished a new book uh, tentatively entitled Infinite Greed, Money, Marxism, Psychoanalysis, uh, that you know, as the subtitle makes, uh, makes clear, involves combining in particular Marxism and psychoanalysis. Uh, and one thing that struck me when I reread this, this quotation from the 2013 first volume of the Prolegomena um, is that uh, there's a real continuity here between a central portion of my new book and, and, this, and this book that we're discussing that was published a few years ago. Uh, and what what I argue in this key chapter of this new book is that basically we are in a situation both in terms of uh, you know issues having to do with science and nature as well as with the economy, where, as I put it in this current project, basically we are religious where we believe ourselves to be secular and secular where we believe ourselves to be religious. Um, and in terms of uh, of nature and the focus on you know science and scientism in in the first volume of the Prolegomena, well, you know this this involves pointing out, and I'm not unique in observing this, that oftentimes you know people who claim to be hard nosed scientific uh, materialists, naturalists, etc. Um, their vision of nature, which itself is not a strictly scientific or, or you know, experimentally confirmed uh, hypothesis, but is rather a kind of metaphysical vision of nature, that it really is just a, a, a not very modified you know, sublimation or permutation of something that really is religious and, and more specifically monotheistic. And that all that they've really done is 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 just rename God nature, that they transfer um, attributes traditionally uh, uh, assigned to the divinity of monotheism to what they call nature. And so, you know, you have nature as omniscient, omnipotent, uh, uh, you know, all controlling, all embracing, etc., and that uh, you know various supposed atheistic materialists, when they talk about nature, you know they you could easily, if you just focused on how they characterize it, um, you could see it as just again a, a renamed version. Of the God of traditional monotheism, um, and so you know, there we think we're secular or atheistic, but in fact, uh, you know, where we remain very much in the thrall of features of, of monotheism and its its theology, um, and that you know, in this new project, you know, I look at this not only in relation to how we conceive of nature and and how we think about it scientifically or pseudoscientifically. I also look at the economy and, you know, that there, the way that we relate to the economy as Marx himself, I think already, you know, did a lot to reveal the way in capitalism that we relate to the economy, we treat it very much like God, um, that the, you know, invisible hand of the market is not much different than, you know, than the than a, the divine appendage that pulls our strings. Um, and, you know, uh, interestingly, you know, at the level of religion, you know, so I've talked a bit about where we are actually still religious, you know, or theological, where we think we're secular atheistic. But when you also look at what's happened with religion, you know, it's now become much more a matter of this worldly sectarian identity politics, that, you know, much of it is is really a matter of religion functioning as a point of identification or as a, a, a kind of, uh, you know, emblem of, you know, you know, this is our group. You know, whether it's we think of it as the Christian West or what have you, that you know we now tend to, in terms of religion, uh, be much more concerned. It seems, in terms of our contemporary investment uh, in it, with. You know, again, very this worldly cultural identitarianism, um, and so we're in we're in a circumstance where, uh, you know, our, we still remain faithful in a certain way to the old, you know, monotheistic theological framework, but we do so at the level of what we take to be our secular atheistic conceptions of nature and the economy, and when it comes to explicit religion, much of that has lost its, you know, supernaturalistic or otherworldly. Uh, aspects and has become much more a matter of, you know, this worldly, us versus them, identitarian clash of civilizations type uh, politics. And so it's, it's a very peculiar circumstance.
1: So to kind of dive into the text itself and to develop some things you were just alluding to, you start with a discussion of Lacanian materialism and its relation to religion, In outlining a properly Lacanian materialism, you argue that atheism doesn't necessarily entail materialism, at least according to the Lacanian understanding. Or using the language of philosophical logic, we might say that atheism is necessary but not sufficient for materialism. So can you unpack the problem here and explain what a true or consistent Lacanian materialism would be?
0: Yes. And there's certain things about Lacan's relationship to materialism that I am confident will come up later with some of the subsequent questions. Um, But for now, I can begin by saying that, in my view, it's actually, in terms of the relationship between materialism and atheism, what I would say is is that um, materialism is a necessary but not sufficient condition for atheism. Um, And what I mean by this is, closely connected to some of what I was saying a moment ago in response to the first question. And, you know, if you look at, for instance, uh, the history of materialist thought, uh, you know, for example, uh, take the 18th century French materialists, uh, you know, who were involved in this, uh, you know, enlightenment struggle against clerical authority uh, that, you know, when you take figures like, uh, you know, Dolbach, La Matry Diderot, etc. That what you see is is that all right for them. Atheism involves insisting that it is nature, not God, you know, that is responsible for all of reality. Um, but even though this is this renaming of of you know the the. You know, the governing ultimate, you know, horizon of reality, the renaming of it nature rather than God certainly is not without a lot of significance. And especially, of course, these were thinkers who were primarily concerned with fighting out a political and ideological struggle against a religion that was shoring up. uh, A political order um, that they were seeking to assault. uh, That uh, what they do in moving from God to to what they call nature is that, again, they just take the attributes of the old God and reassign them to nature. And although this is a first step in the direction of of atheism, on my view, though, it's only a first step and it's insufficient precisely because um, nature is. Now, you know, basically just a, uh, an altered version of, of the religious God. And for me, there's a, a there's a subsequent step to be taken beyond this, which is to, and this is what I'm trying to carry out in a number of places, including in this first volume of the prolegomena, is moving from what I call strong nature, and that is a vision of nature with a capital N as basically akin to the old God. And showing that nature itself is not this unified totality, this harmonious whole, this uh, locus of of central authority that runs the show, um, this guarantor of of at least consistent order and regularity, if not also meaning. Um, You know, that the additional step of de-theologizing nature involves turning it from this strong nature that is very much modeled on the old God. Um, And instead looking at it as this, this fragmented multitude, this non-unified, Uh, you know, field of disparate entities and events that don't all hang together in this grand scheme or or cosmic order. Um, And so this would be to, you know, in a way, it's like the Hegelian negation of the negation. You have the first negation of renaming God nature, and then you have to carry out the second negation of getting rid of the features of the old God that have been smuggled into the old version of nature. Um, And carrying out the second step, the negation of the negation, you could say, is what I'm really, you know, attempting to carry out using a number of resources, including, uh, you know, figures like Lacan, Badiou, and Mayasul.
1: So jumping off of that, you find recent developments in the neurosciences actually validate this sort of materialism of incompleteness that you're aiming for, particularly with reference to neuroplasticity, which you've developed philosophically elsewhere, especially alongside Catherine Malibu. Can you give us a quick primer on neuroplasticity and how does it function to validate the sort of theoretical materialism you're trying to get at?
0: Yes. And here is where we're zooming in from nature in general to human nature specifically. Um, And of course, you know, when one uses a phrase like human nature, you know, what we often think of is that, well, at the core of who and what we are, as the animals or organisms, you know, that we are, Homo sapiens, um, is ultimately, you know, determined or at least rests upon a bedrock of, of, of 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 natural foundation where, you know, thanks to say evolution, genetics, et cetera, um, you know, we have this, this programming, you know, our DNA, et cetera, that, that, you know, ultimately is determinative of who and what we are uh, and that this is fixed in place uh, by the forces of nature at a broader level in terms of things like, you know, natural history, qua evolution, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, when we talk about human nature, we tend to think of something fixed, firm, immutable, um, you know, this unalterable core that, you know, is is just part of us from birth. Um, And one of the things that, you know, neuroplasticity, uh, among other relatively recent findings in the life sciences, indicates is that this picture of even the natural component of ourselves, however we conceive of that... Is scientifically speaking untenable. Um, that uh, you know what you know the what neuroplasticity uh, uh, says is that the configuration of our central nervous system, and of course the brain, you know, would seem to be a good candidate for that part of our biology that is the seat of our subjectivity. That that the brain. Is as 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 one could put it that it is pre-programmed to be reprogrammed or hardwired to be rewired, um, and you know, put in terms of the simple nature-nurture distinction, it's what neuroscience indicates is that we are by nature inclined to the dominance of nurture over nature, or our first nature is itself. Uh, structured so as to be open to taking on these features of a second nature that is acquired rather than innate. Um, And so from within biology itself, and specifically here neuroscience, um, we have uh, a natural scientific discipline delineate within its own disciplinary confines, um, these openings where it would say biology alone is insufficient for explaining who and what we are. And it's, it's one thing to say biology is insufficient for explaining who and what we are from an extra scientific or even anti-scientific standpoint versus being able to say it on the basis of the findings of the natural sciences themselves. Um, and you know, for me, one of the key significances of, of neuroplasticity, also epigenetics, which emphasizes just how much Environment and experience uh, govern the translation of our genotype into phenotypic features. That these are points within science and specifically within the life sciences where we have a kind of intra scientific imminent critique that indicates that science itself shows that we should not be scientistic reductionists and try and look for all of the answers. You know, in in sciences, the ultimate buck stops here you know, authority on on determining, you know, who and what we are as human beings and subjects.
1: So moving along, in chapter two, you turn to the question of how to integrate or synthesize biology with psychoanalysis and turn to a debate that goes back quite some time. On the one hand, psychoanalysis has a long history of trying to purge itself of Freud's commitment to biology, although the danger you see is that it ends up becoming too abstract, trying to resolve certain issues with a sort of borderline mystical ontology of subjectivity. So can you give us a sense of this debate and explain how it is you try and move between these two options with a sort of bio-Lacanianism?
0: Yes. And here, I mean, one has to bear in mind that both Freud himself, as well as many Non Lacanian analysts and analytic orientations do not share Lacanianism's pronounced uh, anti naturalism and allergy to biology, especially. Um, And, uh, you know, of course, yes, Freud uh, was medically trained, was, you know, very steeped in what was then. You know, cutting-edge neuroscience um, had high hopes for um, future uh, uh, syntheses of psychoanalysis with the life sciences, um, and a lot of non-Lacanian analytic types, you know, have indeed, uh, you know, continued to try and work at those intersections. And in fact, you know, there's a flourishing branch of psychoanalysis called neuropsychoanalysis but it is uh, remarkably free of uh lacanianism uh that it's it's really non lacanian psychoanalytic orientations that have been involved in uh, uh establishing and, and developing the field of neuropsychoanalysis and you know i think that there's been this uh with uh, there are a few exceptions but it's generally been a matter of lacanians uh refusing to engage with this and thinking that Neuropsychoanalysis is this horrible, you know, mistake that involves trying to take what psychoanalysis is concerned with and collapse it into the, you know, explanatory and therapeutic jurisdiction of the of the neurodisciplines. Um, and so, part of what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, in tandem with a few outliers like myself, try to um, both. Overcome what I think is Lacan's not very convincing arguments against naturalism, um, and moreover, also arguments, especially by some of his followers. And, you know, in so doing, open up uh, the possibility for a rapprochement between Lacanianism's very sophisticated metapsychological framework and the resources offered by the neurosciences. And, of course, you know, in the, in the background lurks, for me, you know, a rather, you know, straightforward intuition, which is that when you're talking about human beings and especially about minded human subjects, um, that the idea that you know the study of the brain has no significance or implications for this is ridiculous um that you know ultimately there's just this brute simple sense of if you can't square your theory of minded subjectivity with what you know our best neuroscience says that you're in trouble um and I think that you know the the arguments for that the canians have for not, having to face up to that, aren't particularly convincing.
1: In the final chapter on Lacan, you look at his thoughts on prehistory, primarily with a focus on our inability to get to it. For the most part, he leans in this respect to a sort of Heideggerian or Kantian weak epistemology, where we're placed within a prison house of language, to borrow Frederick Jameson's phrase. Can you unpack what prehistory is and what it means for Lacan to put it off limits epistemologically?
0: Yes. And here, you know, we could distinguish between two senses of prehistory. First, there would be prehistory in the sense of human history prior to language and to with language recorded history. Um, and this is a uh, uh, you know, an area that, uh, you know, a number of different disciplines are interested in studying. Um, And then over and above that, of course, there is the idea of a natural history, which long predates human history, whether recorded or not. Um, so we have these two senses of, of prehistory, but they have in common that both are prior to the advent of, among other things, language and prior to, you know, the the, the human sociocultural history in which, you know, things get recorded, et cetera. Um, and you know, Lacan, particularly during the 1950s, when his engagement with Structuralism is indebted to ultimately Saussure's linguistics. Is at its height, you know. Lacan wants to say. I mean, and you rightly use Jameson's phrase, "the prison house of language." You know, Lacan wants to say that uh, you know whatever is you know beyond, behind, or beneath language, whatever comes before it, what is prior to it. About that we can know or say nothing or if we try to do so we're just going to end up confabulating or telling you know uh fictional just so stories um and uh you know i think that and lacan argues this both in to use a freudian distinction both at the ontogenetic and phylogenetic levels so at the ontogenetic level you know lacan would say that you know in terms of our own life histories you know whatever came before we acquired language, or before, as Lacan might prefer to say it, language acquired us, you know, whatever lies in our early childhood experience prior to language acquisition, that's unknowable for us, that, you know, becomes epistemologically, and also for Lacan, clinically off limits. Um, And then on the phylogenetic level, in terms of the history of the human species, um, you know, whatever comes before recorded history, you know, in the sense, humanity's you know, pre-verbal childhood—that too is is epistemologically out of bounds. And for Lacan, among other things, we cannot know and cannot, you know, tell a convincing uh, a, a story that could count as knowledge. We cannot say anything about the origins of language, um, and this leads Lacan to—I mean, it's really shocking—but um, there's a moment in his teaching. It's specifically in his fourth seminar. There's a session of it in which Lacan has a recourse to the Christian notion of the Holy Spirit. You know, he says that we essentially have to consider the advent of language like the descent of the Holy Spirit upon us. Um, and so we have this, you know, sort of inexplicable ex nihilo, you know, descending out of the skies or popping up out of nowhere, miraculous moment. And then after that, we're fully, you know, human qua you know, speaking subjects, etc. Um, and, you know, I find that the the sort of, uh, you know, idealism, even religiosity, for, that is, I think, Lacan being consequent. Um, but I think it's a signal that he took a misstep along the way. Um, and so, yeah, I want to, and, and moreover, of course, you then also would have to write off a whole series of different disciplines uh you know including a number uh, you know branches of the life sciences anthropology archaeology etc um that i think are reveal quite the contrary that we can through different you know uh, uh approaches that we can come to know quite a lot about prehistory both as human history prior to recorded history as well as of course natural history prior to the advent of of the human species itself
1: to end with your section on lacan you turn to daniel lord smale's theory of deep history and you follow him and develop a critique of Lacan that his view of temporality is still tinged with a certain religious residue, and is insufficient both for being materialist enough as well as failing to keep up with recent developments in evolutionary biology. So, can you unpack what's going on in this final section?
0: Yes. Um, so, this is very closely related to what we we're just talking about uh, with regard to the previous question in um, Daniel Lord Smale's book. Uh, on the topic of deep history, you know, I found to be uh, a a perfect uh, uh, resource for uh, mounting some of these criticisms of Lacan's condemnation of us to the prison house of language, and linking that up with you know, these bigger issues having to do with religiosity that are of central concern to me in the book as a whole, and you know, uh, uh, Smail is pushing back against you know, various uh, approaches to human history, which indeed want to limit us to talking about human history only once we have the beginnings of recorded history in terms of, you know, human beings leaving, you know, linguistic symbolic records. Um, and what, what smale means by deep history here would be, you know, the notion that, well, human history goes much further back than, you know, any of the versions of you know where we mark the beginning of recorded history, um, you know, and Smale points out that you know curiously enough, uh, you know, most of the ways of dating the beginning of of recorded history by supposedly secular or atheistic historians, you know, tends to correspond with things like the biblical sense of you know the age of the earth and with it humanity, etc. And so it's as though the temporal scheme of biblical history um gets disguised in the secular mode of, well, we don't really begin as human beings proper until we have the start of recorded history. Um, and you know, Smail shows again how you know we are in this way, we continue to be religious even when we think we are, you know, operating in a in a purely secular fashion. And along with this, i agree with with smale that you know if you have this sense of you know human history only begins with recorded history and along with that you say well we can't know anything about uh, history prior to its being recorded, well, then you leave the very genesis of recording itself, right? The advent of language and everything it brings with it inexplicable. Um, and it easily, you know, functions as a disguised version, or even with Lacan's reference to the Holy Spirit, it becomes even overtly a matter of, well, one fine day, this sudden miracle happened and language appeared, uh, you know. You know, ex nihilo. And then history really began. Um, and whether implicitly or explicitly, you know, this is a kind of obscurantist, mystical, you know, even just really religious narrative that both Smale and I, you know, Smale is concerned, of course, with intervening in, in disciplines uh, you know, dealing with human history, and I, of course, am, am you know applying this in terms of a critique to Lacan. But Smale and I, are, I think, are you know very much on the same page here. And you know, I even had a ch- I corresponded with him about his book and then he and I had a chance to you know sit down together here in Albuquerque um and he was shocked that Lacan allowed himself to say things like you know the the genesis of language is the advent of the holy spirit in the world and found you know and you know he and I really found that we were on the same page here
1: yeah, that's a really good way to close that off. So you next turn to Alain Badiou, who's in a rather peculiar position, simultaneously claiming allegiance to mathematics in Platonism, while also asserting himself as a materialist. So I think maybe the key way to work our way into this aspect of his thought would be his assertion about the non-existence of nature, nature being understood with a v- very peculiar sense here. So, can you maybe explain what he means by this to start us off?
0: Yes. And perhaps uh, I can start with, you know, Badieu's recourse to Plato, uh, which, you know, especially in the past decade has been a very pronounced feature of a lot of his his work. Um, and, you know, how that already marks a, a, a big difference between myself and him. Um so, you know, and, and really thanks to Badieu, it's become quite fashionable amongst a number of, of my fellow travelers in terms of people interested in contemporary metaphysics in the continental tradition, you know, with debts to orientations like German idealism, Marxism, and, and psychoanalysis, um, you know, that Badieu, and then along with him, a number of others uh claimed that you know what we need to do is to develop a combination of platonism and materialism and that moreover we can read plato as as not only as as a materialist by for instance trying to reread plato's idea about how the forms participate you know in the visible world etc you know but also you know Badiou even wants to lay claim to him you know, as a sort of proto-communist, you know, thanks to how he talks, how Plato talks about the community of guardians in the Republic. And to cut a long story short, um, I am much more of a spontaneous Aristotelian than a than a Platonist. And, you know, Badiou has nothing but antipathy for, for Aristotle. Um, but, uh, you know, following, for instance, you know, figures like Hegel himself, um, I think that, you know, Aristotle's Metaphysics is, you know, obviously much closer to, and I think rightly is regarded as you know much more congenial to any kind of materialist approach than Plato, the, you know, really the, the one of the founding fathers of metaphysical realism, and along with it, a kind of anti-materialist idealism. Um, and so I'm unconvinced by these efforts to recast Plato as some peculiar sort of, of materialist and, and radical leftist. Um, but that aside, um, when Badieu turns his attention to the the topic of nature, um, and you know he takes us up in a number of places. And most importantly, in his 1988 magnum opus, Being an Event, um, he he says one version of nature does not exist, and then there's another version of nature um, that he says this is the correct conception based on my Badieu's ontology. The version that he denies, and here I am somewhat sympathetic to him, he, so, you know, Badieu wants to develop this ontology of what he calls pure multiplicity, um, and his recourse to mathematics, especially set theory, is is, is centrally involved here. But Badiou it, it wants to say that there are no fundamental unities at either a, a macro or a micro level uh, at the fundamental, uh, in terms of fundamental ontology, that um, that being at both the largest and smallest levels is just a series of proliferating multiplicities without without end. Um, and so you have this idea of, with Badiou, a oneless ontology, you know, that is is that purges any appeal to, you know, to, you know, grounding or all-encompassing unities, you know, gets rid of them and here this idea of 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 the of banishing the one of exercising the specters of 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 unity totality wholeness etc i mean that's something i actually take inspiration from and you know likewise seek to develop in my own way but without making this depend upon you know the abstract formalism of pure mathematics um, but where i disagree with badiou here is that he says all right. Well, with nature, and you know, I should back up a moment. I should say I agree with him that nature, in terms of this idea of an all-encompassing unity, you know, a fundamental wholeness or totality that is internally, uh, you know, harmonious and homogeneous, I share with him a rejection of that. Um, but then Badu says, you know, even though nature is not this this one all or this whole or totality, it nonetheless is this domain of you know, utterly lawful regularity. Uh that that nature is this this you know, for in his set theoretic ontology, nature is this set of, of structures and dynamics um that are consistent with themselves, um and that involve uh, a, a kind of smooth running of, of a predictable, you know, lawful business as usual, and it's weird. It's almost as though you get a vision of nature here, which is pre-modern, where you know it's it's like uh, you know the the ancient and medieval conceptions of nature as that eternally recurring order of regular cycles, such as the changing of the seasons, um, and you know that that sense that nature is nothing but. Uh, lawful regularity and and cohesive, self-consistent order, uh, despite Badiou's detotalization of it. Um, you know, that I think that picture of nature is 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 not really defensible. Um, and that, you know, for me, you know, nature is a lot less lawful, regular, etc., than than Badiou depicts it as being. Um, and that moreover, it contains internal differentiations within itself, such as various layers of emergence um, that, you know, involve uh, a a kind of, uh, you know, a diversity and heterogeneity of forms of regularity or structure that Badiou's way of talking about nature doesn't have a place for and wouldn't be able to capture.
1: In his 2006 book, Logics of Worlds, Badu draws our attention not just to the materialism-idealism debate, but points to a rift within materialism itself. You write, quote, on the one hand, there is a materialism, democratic materialism, wholly compatible and thoroughly complicit with the socioeconomic order of late capitalism. On the other hand, there is another materialism, a materialist dialectic. Advocated for by Badu as an assault on the hegemony of late capitalist ideology and everything that goes along with it. End quote. So, can you unpack these two materialist approaches and how they feed either into or against our current socio political climate?
0: Yes. And this is this is a this is a place uh, in Badiou that uh, elicits a lot of sympathy from me. I mean, and and again, with all three of these figures in this book, Lacan, Badiou, Mayasu, you know, this book in part is me settling accounts with these influences on my own work um, and, you know, drawing up a, a, a balance sheet of, you know, places where I agree with them and places where I, where I profoundly disagree. Um, but this is one of those points that, you know, involves me being in, in, in you know, substantial agreement with Badiou. Um, and what Badiou means by this distinction, um, well, we can start with, you know, his phrase democratic materialism. And what he's seeking to capture with this is a kind of, well a set of worldviews and we could even say of ideologies that are, you know, we would readily recognize as, okay, pervasive forms of relativism, culturalism, you know, social constructivism, where, you know, the, the, the basic perspective is that, you know, human reality is this diverse array of different linguistic and cultural universes. And uh, all we have are, are are these, you know, various and sundry communities, life worlds. Uh, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, different fields of meaning. Uh, And there, you know, perhaps sometimes they might be compatible. Sometimes they might be incompatible. Um, But, you know, all there is, is this diversity and there is no uh, possibility since this is all there is. There's no possibility for anyone to appeal to um, the true, the universal, the eternal, etc., uh, you know everything is is relative. Everything is just a matter of of context and of incommensurable times, places, and perspectives, right? So it's this family of of, of perspectives, this set of worldviews or ideologies, that Bedu labels uh, democratic materialism, um, and. Uh, What he contrasts with this is what he calls materialist dialectics, which, of course, the very phrase itself is is obviously indebted to the Marxist tradition. Um, But instead of a Marxism that participates in this relativism by saying everything is just simply reducible to history and is always historically localized, um, and really that's not Marx's position either. but, But you. Uh, you know, is, is interested in how do you develop a materialism that is a materialism, but that allows you to account for things that we traditionally associate with, with idealism, namely, you know, strong senses of truth, universality, uh, you know, eternity, infinity, etc. And so this idea of, you know, how could we account for as if you're, for instance, indebted to the Marxist tradition, how as a historical materialist can you account for the history-imminent genesis of things which, once they arise in history thereafter, um, cease to be merely historical or localizable within particular you know, social, et cetera, contexts. Um, and uh, you know, a simple example suffices here. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's easy to observe that the foundations of arithmetic and geometry as abstract mathematical disciplines are, those foundations are laid in the ancient Greek world. And that, of course, is a particular historical context, um, you know, specific, you know, social, cultural, et cetera, life world. But of course, we, I think, will readily recognize that even though we can trace the origins of anything whatsoever, including mathematics, to a specific time and place, that those disciplines aren't just Greek, you know, and, and can't just be reduced to their origins and that they, you know, take on a certain, you know, trans-historical, one might say eternal validity thereafter. And Badiou, like me, is interested in the possibility that this sort of thing happens in not just in isolated cases like mathematics, but in various domains of human history, you have moments where something emerges, which once it comes on the scene, can't just be treated as one fleeting historical phenomenon among others. Um, and so there he and I are both after the same thing. Um, but my, my critique of him is that he... In trying to have both of these things, to be a materialist on the one hand, and on the other hand, be able to appeal to categories like truth, universality, infinity, eternity, etc., that his way of trying to hold on to both of these doesn't allow him to really you know, keep a firm grip on the materialism side of the equation.
1: A problem you identify with Bedou is his criticism of biology and neuroscience. And you even quote him in an interview comparing neuroscience to phrenology at one point. This, you argue, involves a fundamental misunderstanding of both what neuroscience is and how it can be used to inform and develop philosophy, as well as related political theories. Can you unpack the core elements of his criticism here, as well as the misunderstanding reflected?
0: Yes. So... You know, here the the uh, Badieu's appeal to phrenology, uh, you know, is is really quite telling. You know, and in fact, you know, of course, Hegel famously in the eighteen oh seven Phenomenology of Spirit directly critiques the phrenology of Franz Josef Gall. Um, and you know, for instance, there are you know relatively recent bits of Hegel scholarship, which try and take Hegel's critique of phrenology and argue that this is just as applicable to uh, contemporary neuroscience, and that therefore contemporary neuroscience is not really advanced beyond uh, what we know was an intellectually bankrupt endeavor, namely phrenology. Um, and Badieu, you know, makes the same claim here, albeit without, I think, the reference to Hegel. But anyhow, I think that this is, you know, utterly unfair and reflects a profound lack of understanding of the neurosciences. So, you know, what was phrenology in essence? Well, it was an effort to localize features of persons uh, in relation to bumps on the skull, and bumps on the skull taken as indicating how the underlying brain beneath the skull was configured. Um, and so, Phrenology was an early attempt at what we would call neuroanatomical localization, right? It was an attempt to map one-to-one correspondences between, for example, personality traits um, and the configuration of the brain as supposedly revealed by the contours of the skull, um, and of course not only uh, you know do we know that it was problematic to try and use the contours of the skull to infer things about the anatomy of the brain in particular persons um, you know there's also the and this is what already Hegel goes after and that you know Badiou is dismissing when he dismisses neuroscience is still phrenological um, it's really the program of neuroanatomical localization right and the idea that you know either we can Map one-to-one correspondences between our subjectivity and our brains in, in, in specific regions of our brain, or that doing so is informative, tells us anything, you know, actually revealing, et cetera. And so Badieu is essentially saying, when he compares contemporary neuroscience to phrenology, that what neuroscience boils down to is nothing more. Than this either a vain or uninformative program of localizing all of the features of ourselves in specific regions and subregions of the brain, and although there you know is a, a certain amount of work that's done in neuroscience in terms of localization, um, that is hardly representative of the the entire procedure of the of those disciplines or or, or even or even the essence of them. Um, And that, you know, of course, to begin with, right, uh, you know, we, you know, neuroscientists, you know, emphasize that there isn't this neat one-to-one pairing of features of ourselves and regions of the brain, that in fact, you know, there's a high degree of distribution of, you know, different functions and how those functions manifest between multiple parts of the brain. Um, Furthermore, with for instance, epigenetics and neuroplasticity, there's also the awareness that, well, it's not as though there's any explanatory finality to saying this part of the brain is giving rise to this feature of our mindedness or subjectivity, um, because it may very well be that in terms of the causal history of why that part of the brain is doing this, we're going to have these plastic synaptic networks having been shaped and reshaped by things like environmental experience uh, you know uh, you know the, the, the person's relationship to their natural and social environment, et cetera, that is going to be, you know, that is going to have configured and be reflected in how that neural circuitry is working. So there's not a sense that localization is any kind of ultimate explanatory you know, buck stops here. Finality, um, and that uh, you know. In in addition, you know, I think that uh, you know, there's this this profound uh, 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 appreciation, uh, you know, amongst neuroscientists that you know, the brain it, itself is not only a matter of regions and subregions that either individually or cooperating through relationships of distribution are generating features of our subjectivity but there there's a paradigm advanced by some people working in these fields of what is called the kludge model of the brain, you know, and a kludge is, uh, you know, in engineering terms, a kind of improvised slapped together, uh, uh, you know, basically, you might say, uh, held together with with duct tape, etc. contraption to solve a problem, but it's very improvised, haphazard. And you might think of it as almost like, uh, you know, A kind of MacGyver model, right? Where, okay, I've got some old chewed bubblegum, you know, a book of matches, a paperclip, and somehow I'm going to put this together to, you know, create this device that will get us out of a jam. Um, And when, you know, when uh, you look at the brain, what, you know, the life sciences, you know, now are indicating is that, well, it's the product of this haphazard evolutionary history. And it's, uh, when we, examine our brain, what we see is, is that there are all these different components and subcomponents that have been slapped together under the pressures of, of, a, of a contingent haphazard evolutionary history. Um, and that instead of all of these things cooperating to generate our, you know, our mindedness and subjectivity, you know, doing so as a matter of a distribution of labor between, you know, very well-organized, you know, localities and regions of the central nervous system, that part of what makes us who we are is the fact that our brains are, are basically um, this awkward marriage of these components that don't work very well together. And that you have, for instance, like, you know, an evolutionarily archaic brainstem that's having to negotiate a a kind of working relationship with an evolutionarily very recent cerebral cortex is just like the most striking example of this. And the picture of the Badu has of, of neuroscience, you know, you'd think that neuroscientists believe the brain was this, you know, uh, you know, very well integrated, harmonious machine where its different localities cooperate so as to generate uh, you know each locality on its own a specific feature of who and what we are and that this is and that tracing these correlations is all that neuroscientists do that's just it that does not at all reflect um the the fields that he is i think very unfairly comparing to 19th century phrenology
1: Yeah, that's an excellent kind of defensive, kind of your philosophical neuroscience, I think. Um, So to finally turn to uh, Quentin Mielisu, you bring up one of the core issues in his work in the form of a question, did the earth exist before humans? You connect this to a set of epistemological and metaphysical questions. So can you unpack why is this even a sensible question to ask and what is Mielisu's response to it?
0: Yes, and this is uh, another place where I am very much in agreement with my interlocutors that I'm I'm quite sympathetic to uh, what the, the the gist of of what Mayasu is after uh you know when he talks about for instance uh you know the existence of of the earth before humans. Um and to you know oversimplify somewhat um you know what may one of the things that mayasu is is preoccupied with doing particularly in his his book after finitude um is challenging a a a, a long standing kind of dominant tendency in continental european philosophy that we can indeed as mayasu does trace back to kant um and that you know of course starting with kant you have this uh, line of of orientation philosophically that says anything knowable or that can count as 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 existing for for us humans is dependent upon our subjectivity that you know our subjectivity generates the field of our experience, and the objects that show up in that experience is what we are able to have knowledge about, et cetera, um, that these are even if there are things in themselves apart from us Our the scope of our knowledge is limited to how things show up as mediated by and dependent upon our own subjectivity. Um, and, you know, the, and that, uh, you know, may to, uh, you know, to condense a lot, you know, one of the things that may points out is that if you take someone who has this sort of sensibility and wants to say all knowledge, all reality, even, or what counts as reality for us is dependent on us, is reliant upon our own subjectivity and how it mediates things, et cetera, Um, that uh, however sophisticated the defense of this sort of idealism, starting with Kant, um, you can problematize this by pointing to some things that, uh, you know, are really going to result in some awkward responses from these sorts of uh, subject-centric philosophers. And so, you know, Mayasu, you know, talks about, you know, the, you know, of course, the existence of the earth before humans, you know, and even more specifically brings up as an example uh fossils and you know fossils uh you know long predating uh you know the the uh rise of Homo sapiens and even of uh you know of of sentient animals. Um and you know Mayasu pointing to these fossils you know says okay well you know, our present best science, things like carbon dating, et cetera, you know, indicates the fossils are this age and hence long predate there being any sentient beings with conscious awareness, et cetera. Um, okay, idealists, you know, starting with Kant, how do you deal with this? Um, and, you know, what Maesu wants to say is, is that Basically, you get answers that uh, are as awkward and implausible as, you know, for instance, how Christian creationists or fundamentalists you know, deal with fossils, right? Where, you know, okay, here you have this fossil that's millions of years old, yet you have this biblical story about the age of the earth being much you know, shorter than that. And the idea that, well, these fossils were planted here by God to test our faith— um, that, you know, what you get with, you know, various idealists who say, well, everything that, uh, you know, we could know and that, that counts as reality for us is dependent on our subjectivity. Well, what about all of this material that, especially the sciences, have served up, which seems to involve us not only being aware of, but being able to know things about, um, you know, the Earth uh, and the universe that vastly predate, you know, by huge orders of magnitude. Um, the relatively brief uh, period of natural history in which you have uh, sentient life on earth and in particular, you know, Homo sapiens around. Um, And, you know, just Emmaus wants to point out that there's a way in which any kind of subject-centric idealism can't do satisfactory intellectual justice to what, you know, we have massive amounts of evidence for in the guise of what natural science tells us about, you know, the, the time frames of natural history and the place of life in general and of human life specifically within it.
1: Mielisu bases a lot of his thought on David Hume, although you argue that he has cherry-picked bits of Hume without always following through on the full implications of the elements he picks up. And the result is he ends up with various sort of inconsistencies in his ideas. So can you unpack uh, kind of the fail to follow through and what he ends up with?
0: Yes, and so for the what Mayassu is uh, relies on most in Hume's empiricist work um, is Hume's problem of induction, as it's called. And you know what what Hume purports to show in his philosophical analysis of our concept of causality, you know, that we use to talk about any and every cause and effect relationship. Um, what uh, uh, Hume <laughs> seeks to demonstrate is that we are never actually entitled to say that we a, a, a given pattern that we observe as involving for us cause and effect is an eternally necessary law that will always hold in all instances. Um, so, you know, if you take any natural scientific law, you know, that we propose as an inviolable cause and effect structure that governs, you know, certain phenomena. Um, That, you know, as as Hume points out, that, you know, we human beings are never going to be able to test an infinite number of times in all times and all places to be able to test for the eternal validity of our hypotheses uh, about causality. That, uh, you know, that, that there is there's no a priori guarantee that we have that all future cases are going to conform to past observed cases. And no matter how many past observed cases we have, we have only a finite number of them, however large. And we're never going to be able to say we can go from believing that it is highly probable that certain causal patterns will continue to be exhibited you know, in future instances, to saying we are absolutely certain that we have, you know, a, a a kind of maximal predictive power, which allows us to say that our knowledge about causality is absolutely certain to hold good indefinitely into the future. Um, and so, for Hume, what we can conclude is is that we can never be sure that we have. You know, direct insight into mind-independent causal necessity—it um, might be there, but we can never know because you know the the fact of our finitude makes it such that you know we're condemned to only have a finite number of past confirmations, with no guarantee that the future will continue to conform to the past. And this is one way of of, in a nutshell, summarizing Hume's problem of induction uh, vis-a-vis causality. And Mayasu's move, and it's you know sort of a Hegelian-style one, is to take this Hume and, as I might describe it, to transubstantiate ignorance into insight. And what I mean by this is that Mayasu takes the problem of induction and says, whereas Hume wants to treat this as a matter of ignorance in terms of epistemology, right, and a the theory of knowledge according to which we can't know whether what we take to be causal laws really are necessities in mind-independent reality, Meosu says, instead of viewing the problem of induction as an epistemological matter, and and specifically as a matter of ignorance, instead we should treat it as, and this is the bit of Hegelian Judo here, we should treat it as insight into a real absence of causal necessity in, in nature and reality itself that, you know, for Meosu Hume ends up discovering that there are no eternally valid causal laws governing with with, with you know, guaranteed perpetual uh, authority how reality functions. And that for Mayasu, right this is this leads to his idea of hyper chaos, which is that um, you know at any moment, Um, What we take to be, for instance, laws of nature could be temporarily or permanently suspended, and other causal patterns or, you know, regularities might come on the scene instead. Um, And, you know, in my view, just to stick with this sort of Hegelian-style transubstantiation of ignorance into insight – this alone creates a bunch of problems that either mayasu does not address or when he tr- or some of them that he tries to address, I don't think he, he satisfactorily puts to rest. And I can use a, a straightforward example here. So if we look back at the early 20th century and what happens in physics, right We have the transition from a Newtonian to a post-newtonian physics and that at the micro level, of, of quantum mechanics and the macro level of the general theory of relativity we have the 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 break with newton um, and if we really accept mayasu's use of hume's problem of induction then mayasu has no means for prohibiting someone from saying well what happened in the early 20th century is not that we got you know Learned from certain anomalies, and and you know were able to develop a superior set of of uh, natural scientific uh, uh, explanatory frameworks than Newton could, but that you know that at some point randomly, like let's say in the late nineteenth early twentieth century, nature itself spontaneously, given Mayus's idea of hyper chaos, arbitrarily went from being a, a Newtonian universe to being a post-Newtonian one. So instead of, oh, the uh, Newtonian scientists were mistaken or, or overlooked or didn't have the ability to observe certain things, you know, we could easily, on May, in Meosu's framework, tell a story according to which, for some unknown reason, or just for no reason at all, really, um, nature at some point in time at the turn of the last century uh, just spontaneously on its own shifted from being a Newtonian to a post Newtonian universe uh, rather than, you know, the previous science was, was mistaken and, you know, had a very incomplete picture. Um, and so in my view, these sorts of things are kind of reductions to the absurd of his position. I mean, if you have a a position that appeals to natural science as Mayasus does, but then allows for these sorts of outlandish narratives to be defensible like universe really did transition from being Newtonian to post-Newtonian and not our science got better. Um, if, if you allow for things like that that are disastrous for scientific thinking and, and for you know how we consider the history of the sciences, then you've created more problems than you solved.
1: Interestingly enough, another place Bidou and Milosu fall short in your view is actually part of a larger trend you see in continental philosophy, which is a more friendly disposition towards religious and theological thought, which is obviously incompatible with your sort of strict materialism. At times, this is explicit, as in Bidou's book on St. Paul, but at other times, it can be in much more subtle ways, such as Milosu's Hyperchaos So can you unpack the way in which religion, be it systematically theological or the form of new age mysticisms is smuggling itself into continental philosophy that you see here?
0: Yes. And here um, and and, and in certain other places, I've I've laid out this historical narrative in greater detail, Um, but this takes us back actually to the very origins of continental philosophy itself. I mean, what we call continental philosophy really traces back to you know, in particular, the the German-speaking world of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And um, you have, in that, that time and place, in that specific context, you have a number of different developments that involve, you know, not only the best-known, namely German idealism, Kant, Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel, um, but also you have, you know, along with them, for instance, uh, the, the German Romantics, and then also a faction of thinkers who are avowedly defenders of religion generally, and here Protestantism specifically, going on this uh, a counterattack against uh, the, the secular Enlightenment in the European context. Um, and you know, they often are referred to as pietists. And so you've got these, these pietists, these romantics, and these idealists, um, and, you know, it's it's this set of groupings that, where you really find the roots of, of what we have ever, you know, what we've come to call continental philosophy. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you and I, in our previous interview about my book, A New German Idealism, you know, talked about Hegel's very kind of, you know, complex, fraught relations with religion and all of the interpretive controversies about his relationship to religion and especially Protestantism. But, I mean, if you look at just Kant uh, uh, and, say, the later Schelling, or you look at the the pietist, anti-enlightenment polemicist Jacobi, you know, if you look at a number of figures uh, from this late 18th, early 19th century German-speaking context, you know, what you find is that religiosity, both, both, you know, uh, uh, explicit and implicit, you know, has been intertwined with a lot of continental philosophy from its inception. and you know, a nice uh, kind of version of what I have in view here was already laid out by the great 20th century Hungarian Marxist Georg Lukács, Um, a book of his from 1954, The Destruction of Reason, um, you know, does, in my view, a very nice job of starting with figures like Jacobi and, and Schelling at certain moments and, you know, tracing this line of of religiosity, spiritualism, etc. You know, as it runs from them through figures like you know Kierkegaard, you know it's Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, on through Heidegger, etc. And so there's this long, you know, tradition, as long as as old as continental philosophy itself, of continental philosophy being either you know covert or overt. Religiosity in a certain way, um, and uh, you know, a- along with this, I mean, one version of this that you see is that, for instance, you know, permutations of negative theology you are just writ large across much of the continental philosophical landscape. I mean, if you look at the 20th century, you find that you have this kind of basic negative theological template, which shows up in you know pseudo secular guise. Uh, sometimes it's avowedly religious or tied to to theological points of reference but often not but you know when you talk about being other flesh the real uh, in certain versions um, difference etc um, that uh, basically you have this 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 recurring template which is that you've got X whether it's being other etc and X is something which we cannot, conceptually get to grips with it eludes the powers of language you know thought etc yet nonetheless this black hole is you know this center of gravity around which all we can do is orbit endlessly you know repeatedly you know talking about it and its ineffability you know it's 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 elusiveness etc um and you know this is you know this is just warmed over negative theology repackaged in various terminological guises um, and I certainly don't think that the task of thought can be reduced to us in a kind of trance-like meditative state with drool coming out the side of our mouths, you know, doing nothing but repeating these these, these terms like being, other, difference, etc. Um, and, uh, it, you know, certainly Badu and Mayasu are not guilty of that. They're, I wouldn't situate them in that lineage. Um, but, you know, of course... You know whether with you know things like you know Badieu's you know concept of the event is often as various critics have noted seeming suspiciously close to the religious notion of the miraculous, you know, or with Mayasu's, you know distribution of the features of the old god, some of which he assigns what he calls hyper chaos, and then Mayasu even talks about well. The old God doesn't exist, hasn't existed, but might, because of the hyper-chaotic nature of reality, come to exist in the future. Um, that you have, you know, these these different theological aspects to Badius and Maia's thinking, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, on my assessment, of course, are part of what lead to them failing to develop thoroughly atheistic uh, uh, materialisms that truly do manage to break with the residues of of these past spiritualist and theological orientations.
1: To wrap this up, most of this book has been more focused on philosophical theory, but in the background, your political commitments, particularly to Marxist-Leninist theory or some qualified version of it, and your critical stance on late capitalism are always operating. To wrap things up, can you reconnect your criticisms of the philosophical systems we've been outlining? And to be more specific, in spite of the radical aspirations of some of these thinkers, Badou in particular, you find their theories of subjectivity insufficient for grounding a radical politics. So can you summarize the political failures of these ontologies and what will a materialist ontology of subjectivity need to do to ground the possibility for radical politics?
0: Yes, and here, you know, Badiou of the three figures covered in the book, Lacan, Badiou, and Mayasu, he's he's the key one. You know, Lacan was deliberately hard to pin down about politics and and you know it was very provocative and you know said various things that you know one is able to to Work with productively as a political theorist, but he himself, I mean, was not deeply engaged with what we might call politics in terms of his thinking. Um, and there's not really any political theory in Mayasu's work to date. Um, but of course, with Badiou, yes, uh, the political dimension is is a key component of his philosophical apparatus and is omnipresent throughout his work. And so, yes, he's 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 the crucial uh, point of reference here, and you know the, the way that I, I i i can actually rather you know concisely summarize my differences with Badieu here now obviously with both of us there is this uh, uh joint commitment this shared as Badiou would put it fidelity to uh radic- the legacy of radical leftism you know including and especially the marxist tradition uh you know and the sense that it is only within this part of the radical leftist tradition that you have articulated, you know, anything that can give us some at least qualified hope, you know, for a better future on the other side of capitalism, hopefully. Um, But, you know, Badiou is led by his fundamental philosophical framework, by, you know, his his systematic ontology and theory of subjectivity um, to sideline three Different dimensions, all of which are, by contrast, with him central to my own approach. So, we've talked about how, you know, Badiou wants to. Marginalize, you know, the relevance of natural science and especially the life sciences, biology, wants to, you know, view that as as really just irrelevant to, you know, how we think and talk about who and what we are, Um, and then, you know, in relation, especially to the Marxist tradition and to Badiou's vision of politics, I mean, you might say that Badiou is is a communist but not a Marxist in in the sense that, whereas for Marx, Engels, and most of their successors, there was a sense that both, the, both economics and politics as involving the state were central points of reference. And that, uh, uh, you know, both in terms of theory and practice, um, the economy and the state are two key domains of concern uh, for traditional Marxism going back to the founders themselves. Um, And, you know, Badiou, in his conception of politics, is insistent that we think of radical leftist politics now in a mode where we disregard um, both the economy and the state, and that, you know, politics is is not in any kind of conditioned relationship vis-a-vis the economy, uh, and this, of course, is at odds with what classical historical materialism indicates um, and that moreover um, that uh radical leftism should no longer be concerned with uh, uh achieving state power whether through peaceful or violent means whether through you know through you know reforms and participation in the electoral process or you know revolutionary interventions like october
1: 1917
0: um and so he wants this conception of, of a kind of communist politics that uh, that just disregards the dimensions of the economy and the state. Um, and that for me, you know, especially if we're talking about Marxism, the most valuable elements of it are, first of all, Marx's philosophical anthropology in which a life scientific approach to who and what we are is crucial to his theory of labor and labor's role in how we we you know, con- construct and, and and are part of our own social histories. Um, and in addition, unlike Badiou, and here Zizek and I are in, and are in real agreement, um, that this, uh, you know, downplaying of the economy and the sense of the economy as, you know, as, as just separate from the, you know, the concerns of politics proper, totally disagree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, now more than ever, um you know the 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 centrality of of the economy to to our entire you know socio-political existence uh is is really just you know i don't see how one can credibly you know disregard that or not take it into account you know i think if anything you know our current circumstances uh really vindicate you know a lot of what was involved in marx's emphasis on the central role of the economy, particularly in terms of, of capitalist socio-political dynamics, um, you know, and then also, you know, the notion of, you know, a, a, of a politics that, you know, just disregards the state as, you know, as a mere matter of administration, bureaucracy, you know, technocratic uh, uh, oversight, etc. You know, that too. I also, you know, thoroughly disagree with. And I think, you know, the issue of how you successfully institutionalize radical change, including through forms of governance that Badiou associates with the state in a in a disparaging manner, I think is also utterly crucial to, to any politics that would, you know, try to dramatically alter our circumstances. And so I don't think you can have, you know, anything that would count as truly revolutionary change without altering both the economy and the state. Um, So, yeah, those are, you know, those are, I think, big bones of contention, uh, you know, between myself on the one hand and someone like Badiou on the other.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of Volume 1. So for any listeners still with us, um, we're planning on talking about Volume 2. I have a copy on my desk right here, so we'll get to that when we can. So in the meantime, Adrian Johnston, thank you so much for coming back.
0: Thank you again for having me, and I very much look forward to our conversation about Volume 2 whenever that happens.